This episode of Let's Think On It comes from an excerpt from O Brother Radio with Will Lockamy, Reed Lockamy, and Dr. Mark Westfall. Welcome to Let's Think On It. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Westfall, and today's topic is the coronavirus. This is one of a series of podcasts we're doing on this very important topic. As usual, we strive to be educational and entertaining uh, without being sensationalizing on topics that are important to us. Today's no different. We've got guest Landon Westfall. He's a scientist at Southern Research Institute and spends his career studying viruses and helping develop vaccines. And he's now studying the novel coronavirus and brings his knowledge to us today. So stay tuned and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Mark Westfall, again, um, also Landon Westfall, joining us now, microbiologist. And what's the official title, again, that I should give you? So, Associate Director of Influenza at Southern Research. Okay, excellent. Um, and we've chatted with you before because, uh, you know, it was last May, I think? We were talking yeah, it was about last May. They were the having flu. a series at... Um, McQueen. Science, McQueen. Yeah, McQueen. Yeah, yeah. And so he was one of the guest speakers. So we had four or five different scientists come on. And, and so he came on and talked about pandemics. I did. Uh, in May. And, and he, by the way, listeners, you should go hear that. I, I listened to it again before this one. And, and he's really good. Turns out. He's Turns really out, good. Right? <laughs> that, was, that was a great that was a good show. One. It no, was. Mama, and it's so... My mama didn't lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> when we hang out with Dr. Westfall, uh, we podcast these, or he does, under the podcast name Let's Think On It, which was cool because I was able to kind of quickly go back and be like, oh, yeah, that's when that was. Sadly, I didn't go back to, and listen to it because I know we did kind of talk about, like, what would happen if this ever... This oh, kind of thing happened again. Oh, yeah. I wanted to nice, judge you yeah. on how, how well you predicted. He's, <laughs> he's good. He's good. So I think you know, we've, we learned from him that he's got kind of some... some um, favorite pet viruses. I mean, you know, this guy's in the lab, right? Now, right. you know, Dr. Threcote in our f- previous segment is, is a physician. He's treating patients. This guy knows the science behind the virus itself. He's in the lab figuring out how to make vaccines, right? We're absolutely, yeah. And uh, for drugs and vaccines right now. So we're part of the response. So, and so you're, you're the associate director of influenza, but is, is that also now you're also taking this on as part of what y'all are researching to help yeah. come up with vaccines? It's like, so I'm kind of an infectious disease of uh, jack of all trades. I've worked on a number of different um, highly infectious pathogens and, and coronavirus just happens to be one of them. So how, and I've had this question from uh, listeners and whatnot, how long before we can come up with a vaccine for this ballpark or do we know that answer? So I know that, uh, uh, Dr. Fauci from uh, NIH and uh, NIAD has indicated that they're looking at about 18-month time frame. Okay. Uh, more realistically, probably two years, mostly because of getting an FDA license to uh, put a vaccine out to the public requires a lot of testing. So clinical trials have to be done for safety and, and efficacy and things of that nature. So it takes some time to get through. They'll be, you know, fast-tracked for this response. Right. But, but even still, with a fast-track, it takes a couple years. It does. Yeah, because you want to make sure you're not doing more harm than good right Correct. Yeah. yeah so i mean that's for for safety and we have a pretty good record of 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 making vaccines that are are, are safe and and you know we do a good job of that as a as a, as a whole as a yeah. yeah back in the in the older days uh, before the fda really came on the scene and was really pushing regulated studies and things of that nature uh some of the vaccines had to be pulled but since we've had these regulated studies and safety programs in place our vaccines have been very clean yeah yeah and so so wow a couple years that means we've got we got to do the old school approach to uh, taking care of preventing this, which is the public uh, behavior change, right? Yep. Yeah, that's, you know, like I talked about with 1918, there was behavioral changes that happened 
just from necessity. Um, now, this is a little bit different in regards to the impact that we're expecting to see. But nonetheless, when we see this type of a contagion come through, there are going to be societal changes mm-hmm. and behavior changes that have to happen. And when you say different than, than the uh, 1918 flu, uh, let's make sure that re- the, the listeners understand. Brief overview of the 1918 flu. What was the... So the 1918 flu was much like this, a new virus that the human uh, population never seen. And when it started up, we didn't have the communications that we have now. And so when I talked about it and gave the talk on it last year, it was about talking about how we were in World War One. And so a lot of the boot camps for soldiers as they were getting ready to ship off to Europe, they were 50,000 in and six to eight people in a teepee, basically, that were causing this virus to spread rapidly. And as mm-hmm. they moved across the country to get to the east side to get on ships to go to, to Europe, it came with them. And the problem with that is this in 1918 was it was uh, hurting the healthy population. The young men at war uh, were highly stricken. Um, the stat is, is that we lost more men to flu than we did to the war in World War One. How many people oh. died from that Spanish flu worldwide? Uh, anywhere between 50 and 100 million. 50 and 100 million. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, this so one is... The similarity is it that we've never seen, our body had never seen either of these viruses before. Correct. The dissimilarity is that one was flu, this is coronavirus. Correct. The other is, is that we're 100 years advanced in our medical knowledge. We have, yes. And treatment and antibiotics for, not for the flu, but for the secondary infections that come along with viruses, right? Yeah, so that was partly the reason why 1918 was so severe is um, antibiotics at that point, the secondary infections that happened after the influenza, which were mostly bacterial pneumonia, caused a large percentage of those, yeah. those deaths. And these days, we can we can mitigate that, but at the same time, we still have a large number of deaths to this day from influenza. Yeah, yeah. So, and we, to remind the listener, I mean, the U.S. deaths from influenza between, I think it's between 30 and 60,000 per year. Mm-hmm. About average. Somewhere in there. Yep. Thir- average is 35,000 a year, just in the U.S. Yeah, and we usually have somewhere around 36 million uh, cases of flu every year. Uh, so In it's, the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. yeah. So a lot of times we hear that, and that's not what Dr. Westfall here is doing, but uh, we hear people using that as a, Hey, no one should worry about this because look, we have the flu and it kills this many people and this many people get it. So everybody stop freaking out. What's your take on that? So it's, it's, there's some good and bad to that. So number one, all the preventive measures that we do for flu to prevent flu infection, washing your hands, don't touch your face, cough into your elbow, disinfect things as people become sick. This will work for the same type of virus. The difference with this one is, is that, again, it's a new virus that we've never seen. And the flu virus that circulates every year, some of us have seen it before. And so a lot of times the disease is not as severe for some of us in, the, in say, the healthy population of 18 to 49 area. So with this one, though, we really don't have enough data. Now, current data does suggest that the elderly are the most impacted group right now. Uh, and that's typical for most any type of new infectious diseases. Um, but for the most part, it does spread similarly with contact, aerosol droplets, things of that nature. But there are some differences with this virus that are not necessary with the flu. And one of them is the ability to shed the virus before you have symptoms. And so with mm-hmm. flu, typically we see one day prior to symptoms, you'll be shedding the virus. There have been case reports for this virus that it can be up to three to five days. 
And especially in healthy people who don't necessarily get sick, you may think it's allergies, you may think you got dust, you may have something that can cause you to have the sniffles, but it may actually be the virus. And that will, you can spread that for three to five days before you even get a fever. And so that's part of the concern with when you see some of these societal changes that we're having now is, is because there is going to be healthy people walking amongst us that have the virus and they're not sick. They're not showing any symptoms, but they're shedding the virus. And then they may get symptoms later, but they've been through five days of walking around this earth. And then where have they been? Who have they touched? Who have they contacted? And then you can just see that. So it just starts to expand that way. So we try to mitigate that risk by doing these societal distancing uh, exercises to kind of prevent that kind of spread. And this is where also part of the danger of this is that it makes a lot of people not terribly sick. So they might be thinking, oh, I'm just having seasonal allergies. I will continue to go to work. And not only were they shedding for three to five days before, all the whole time. That's correct. I mean, we're about to hit pollen season here in Alabama. We've got so much rain that it's going to come in strong. And those sniffles and runny noses are going to be, everyone's going to be a little bit more cautious because now you got to be able to know if you're shedding it. So from a societal standpoint, I mean, how, how do you balance... You know, recognizing that, okay, this is a virus that many people are going to have and not be that symptomatic. I mean, it seems to me impractical to say everyone who has any symptoms of illness at all has to stay home. I mean, there are so many viruses out there that, I mean we would be shut down like completely as a society. Is that right? I mean, it's very tough because this is coming in with flu right now and flu. Some of the presentations can mirror the the COVID-19 virus. And so we have to be able to balance that with good testing kits. I mean, that's really what we're looking for right now. And we're starting to ramp that up here in the country, uh, trying to start testing more people. But even now, the testing is only limited to those who've been in contact with people or have been near an outbreak, mm-hmm. a local outbreak, or have been traveling. It's not really testing everyone. And that's the concern because the healthcare system can get overwhelmed if everyone that suddenly has a sniffle or a cough or has a fever runs to the emergency room and says, I need to get tested. And you can see how that would just be a domino right, effect. Right, right. So we were talking with Dr. Thruckle about that. And he was saying that, you know, typically the testing is for someone who has fever. Uh, and shortness of breath, those classic things. And that's kind of, you know, same time when you would test for the flu. Um, And those are practical things to do. And you want to have enough testing to kind of be frequently enough to test, you know, the the people who are starting to have symptoms. Yep. But if you've got, but but if we know that there's a significant part of the population who's not going to show significant symptoms, I mean, I guess I want to help, you know, temper people's anxiety and public reaction. Um, It's... If, if you have, you know, just something that feels like you've got some allergies and no fever, I mean, would you, if we had all the tests available that we could ever have, would you recommend anybody who had any subtle symptom at all go get tested? Or is it, I mean, how do you, how do you discern who, how much testing to do? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we live in an age of information. And so things move at the pace of Twitter right now. And so you'll see when there are local outbreaks and the cases that are being, the media has reported when there's been new cases in certain towns, you know, local around here, we have that. It's always good to see because if it's not prevalent here in this community, then there's a very high probability that it's not going to be this virus. And that's another thing that we have to explain is, is that coronaviruses have been around. We've known about them for a long time. They cause common colds. This one, the difference is, is that it escaped from an animal species, from a bat species, and it jumped into humans. And when that happens, the disease is always more significant because we've never seen it. But as the healthy start to 
you know, become infected and they become better and they, and they start to heal. That's where it is. But I think the information that the government puts out or local authorities put out to let you keep you informed of where these cases are will will tell you a lot. But just stay informed and stay vigilant. I don't think you need to panic right now for this type of virus because majority of the population will be okay. Yeah. So um, to the technical part of behind the virus, how do they find this one? I mean, how do they suddenly find out, hey, this virus just jumped ship from from a different species. I mean, who's who's on the lookout for that? I mean, pe- people like you? Well, so there there are actually scientists that actually uh, go out and do surveillance on species that are prevalent that carry lots of diseases. So you'll see that the USDA does a lot of bird surveillance for flu to see how it's tracking within the United States, how it's doing in Europe and, and other places. Same thing with bats. Bats can carry a lot of things. I jokingly call them the pigs of the sky because they can carry a lot of infectious diseases. So there are surveillance programs, but really what happened with this virus is, is that there was an outbreak that happened in China, and at that point they started testing for it, and they started looking at different panels and running against screens, and they identified it as a potential coronavirus, and as they characterized it, they were able to backtrack it to where there's likely an origin, and then they looked at sequences from these surveillance programs of these species, and they were able to line up so this most likely came from a bat. Gotcha. So someone was already doing work on these species, and they were able to take that documentation and that work cross it with the what they were finding in the human population and, and sort of found out where it was. And, and we, we think it, re, it it originated in China. We think that's where it made the jump. Is well, that- I mean, that's what the, the, all the data kind of points to because that's where the major foci of the outbreak was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more data as we see it because now we know that it's in, kind of endemic in other countries right now. Most of that's been tra- tracked back to travel patterns. And when you say endemic in other countries, you mean may have originated there? No, well, right now we don't know. That's okay. where there's a lot of unknowns for this virus when it comes to the epidemiology of it. We do know where a lot of it has originated from, and we can track that to passengers who have traveled to their, um, you know, cruise ships, things of that nature, mm-hmm. who've jumped on board that way. We can track it back to certain locations, which can give us an idea of where it originated. But ultimately, as we get the data in and we do more sequence analysis, we'll be able to find out. It just so happens that the virus that we're comparing everything else to in the world right now is the Wuhan virus. And that's the virus that we kind of compare to because that's where we first saw the major outbreak. Gotcha. There might have been someplace else that it originated from because Wuhan is a hub for the trail for the railroad and China. So, you know, something like up to 400,000 people passed through there. Right. Could have started someplace else, but it hit a major population area like Wuhan, and that's where it, it proliferated. So one of the things I think that's important to point out is that, you know, because of all the work that people like you in your field are doing on an ongoing basis, most of us have, had, most of us have no clue about. There was a lot of data we, we really picked up on this pretty quickly relative to a few decades ago of what we could have done, right? And we're, we're, we're tracking it down to, you know, where it's, how it's originating, the epidemiology and all that stuff is, I'm assuming we've become very far advanced in all that than we were, we were 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. I mean, there's, we pretty much have a pretty good idea about how infectious this virus is. There are, uh, models out there that can predict that if one person is infected, how many others around them can become infected. And we have those models for a number of infectious diseases that stretch back to what we do deal with now, all the way back to smallpox. And we know the difference between this. So this one has basically an infection rate of about 2.5. So for every one person who's infected up to two and a half people, now it's a statistical model, so that's where you get the half. But if you just upgrade that to 10 people, 25 people are potentially get it. That's where we come into these social gatherings and large gatherings because if one person has it and everyone's tightly packed in, say like a concert or something along those areas, 
then the potential for that to go up is pretty pretty high. Now, most of those people at the concerts are going to be at that healthy area, healthy range, and therefore they're likely to become carriers themselves unless they get comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my concern has never honestly been about myself catching it and whatever, I, I could deal with it. But it's been about, one, being quarantined in a certain place uh, where I can't work or do things I need to do, or especially in another city. Um, but also then, you know, giving it to someone who it would affect negatively, yep. like yeah. our dad. So. Yeah, exactly. So I have parents that are within the risk area. I've got uh, in-laws that are within the risk area, friends of the family that are there that I've been gotten calls from and said, look, what to, what to do? I tell them that you need to be a little bit more vigilant in where you go and how you, you hang out. Most of the time, those individuals are going to be not as social as everyone else would be. But it's us who can take it to them that we have to be a little concerned about. Yeah. So again, yeah. the information that you get about local outbreaks and people who have it here can let you know whether or not you want to hang out for 14 days before you go and see mom and yeah. dad or grandma. And then once that's passed, if you have no symptoms or anything, then just keep that in check. Another one of the, the bright areas if there is, is that it doesn't f- seem like kids are significantly impacted. And so that's been a kind of, you want to call it a silver lining. Because mm-hmm. most of the time when these types of infections come out, it's usually the young and the old that used to get hard, hard. And it seems like the young are just a little too young for this to do any major damage right now. So if you said the, what do you call it, the communicability rate or what do we call that? Well, the- yeah, it's, the, it's basically, yeah. So if that's around 2.5 for this virus... How does that relate to what we think of as the common flu? What's the rate for that? Flu is about 1.5. So it's more communicable than the yes, flu. it is. And what makes a virus like this more communicable? Why would it? So it basically goes back to that lag time from when you're infected and ah. shedding the virus until you show symptoms. So for flu, it's like a day. Gotcha. And then you go down hard with the flu and you know you're sick. But for this one... Think of it this way as a, as a mental exercise. Someone is infected and then they go and they ride the subway in New York and they touch everything along the way yeah. because that's what you do in New York when you ride the subway. And every time they're, you know, touching their face or something along those lines, coughing, whatever it is, then someone behind them comes around and picks it up and they do the same thing. So that's why we were talking about washing your hands because gotcha. that helps prevent a lot of that. That picture of COVID-19, They're like the high definition picture yep. of the ball with the bright red blooms on Those it. Spiky proteins. How do we get that picture? That's the craziest, like when I Wait, saw it the first time I thought. an actual picture? No, that, that's an artist rendering. They, they'll, okay. they'll color it. Uh, under electron microscopy, we can see the basic structures of the spike proteins and how it looks. And then we know, based on, on our understanding of coronavirus, how's the genome's going to look inside that virus. But mostly for the outside, if you were to look at it in wild type, kind of just raw, yeah. it just looked like a big spiky ball. That comes out. Okay. I, that was a serious question because like the first time I saw that, I thought, wait a second. Like, how do we get this? And every time now for a month that I've seen that picture, it's just yeah. every time it blows me away. What kind of iPhone do you have to have to get that <laughs> picture? It's the 11 plus pro. Yeah. yeah. So um, how long, let's say this um, uh, runs its course this year. Is this virus going to be with us? I mean, now that it's made the jump, does that mean it's with us permanently? I mean, uh more than likely, likely. I, I, it would be a safe bet. Again, we don't know a lot about it and how mm-hmm. it's going to react. We'll see a lot about it. You know, the second year after an initial pandemic will tell us a bunch about how the population has responded. There's a couple of uh, uh, understandings that if it does cause an extensive amount of infections within the United States and the healthy people, they will develop their own immunity again, and there will be a natural herd immunity that will develop. Mm-hmm. If we get a vaccine in a couple of years, that would only enhance that thing, that that mm-hmm. process of protecting the rest of the population. So there's the other idea is that <clears throat> right now with this virus and something that's also different from flu is 
It doesn't mutate at a high rate like flu does. It does not. It does not. Hmm. So it's a little bit more stable. I'm not saying it's the most stable thing mm-hmm. on the planet, but it's a little more stable. Because viruses in general mutate a lot. They can because every time they get into a person, it all depends on what kind of selective pressure our body puts on it, and they'll adapt. I mean, that's yeah. the reason why they hang around for years. Right, so, right. But for the most part, this one tends to be a little bit more stable than the influenza because the influenza is a, little, is a different virus, obviously, but it, it has certain mechanisms that prevent the COVID-19 from mutating too fast. It doesn't mean it won't. As of right now, the data suggests that we haven't seen a mutation. There hasn't been two strains. There's some anecdotal evidence coming out of China, but we're going to wait for the actual official uh, sequences to come out to show that drift. All right, so let me throw this at you, and this may be, I don't want to be uh, insensitive, okay, but I want to look at it from uh, epidemiology and a a protracted period of time kind of effect. So because many people get it and don't get that sick with it, then they're acquiring some immunity to it in the future, right? Potentially. Potentially. So, um, and it's mainly affecting, it's more virulent against the elderly right now, which is something, as we've talked about, to be very aware of and concerned about and, and behave in a certain way. But is there a, is there a little bit of silver lining that, that the, the people who are getting exposed to it and that herd immunity is more likely to help us down the road when you know another 20, 30 years when we're elderly, now we see this virus and we will have immunity against it if you get it, versus you know nobody getting it or or you know diminishing how many people get it. You know, it's, it's, see what I'm saying? There's a little balance of so, so of little... having some exposure to. It's like having your children. You want them to be exposed to some things when they're young so they develop immunity. So how do you balance that with something like this where we really want to flatten the curve? They speak about how many you know how fast people get it. But people are still going to get it, and that's not all bad from, if we're fighting this virus as a humanity. Is that – you so, know what I'm saying? From strictly from a, you know, you're thinking of like a risk-reward type situation for future generations. There's some right. anecdotal evidence out there from the 1918 influenza pandemic that people that were exposed to the 1877 pandemic actually survived better at 1918 because of them being exposed so many years ago when they were younger and healthier. So there was some evidence that suggested that that particularly contributed to the fact that the elderly were not hit as hard in 1918 because of that pandemic. So there is some evidence to support that. But the big thing about this virus is it depends on how it changes in the next 20 years. So, yes, right now we think that the protein that is the main antigen that we're going to use for vaccine production will be enough to provide protection for the population and get that herd immunity up. But if that protein changes, like any other virus can, then there might be a small drift in that protein that may not make it as antigenic in future viruses. But like I said, this virus over time, you know, we'll have to see how it changes once it gets into a larger population. Imagine it's only been in a bat population. That can be a large number, but you're talking about billions of people in which it right. has a chance to survive. And so that right there is kind of an unknown. But I would say that any type of exposure to an infectious disease in one form or the other will help overall for your immune system to help you battle future forms of it potentially. Flu is kind of a different animal altogether because sometimes that helps, sometimes it doesn't help. So gotcha. it's one of those things that we just have to see once we get more data. Yeah. yeah. So today's day, uh, the whole day has been spent basically dealing with canceled events, right? Yeah. Everything's being canceled. And ironically here as we speak, Facebook now, I guess, is responding to that. So like one after the other, every event that Reed and I are involved with, that the station's involved with, is coming as up as like this event is canceled. People are really concerned about how long that is going to go on and how long is it going to be before we can have these things that fuel our city and fuel our economy 
Um, what's your prediction on that? I know nobody knows. We don't know, but yeah, what's your prediction? I mean, we're still going to have to see the data right now because the testing has been so low in the United States. We really don't have a foothold on whether or not how, that, how much this virus has spread thus far. So that's really, I mean, we can kind of do prediction models that say population densities like the larger cities are going to have large cases. Um, that's what the one of the things you will have to take into context is over the next couple of weeks and even the next three or four weeks, the cases in the United States are going to go up. It just is. Once the testing gets going, it's going to get there. The question what they're doing now, and a lot of colleges are shutting down for a couple of weeks. A lot of things are being canceled to the end of March because they're trying to put the societal distancing in play to try to starve the virus from spreading too far. Uh, right now, we just don't know how far into the United States that it is. We know we have hot areas that are around California and, and some other areas are going to be hit harder because of, the, of where they're at. But how far is it into the interior of the United States? We don't know because right now, like I said, healthy people don't have to report anything. And great news, it's not in Alabama at all. Wink, 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 nudge, nudge. So how would you grade how we've done as a country in responding to this um, in general? So as a scientist, you know, we went through this in 2009 with the H1N1 pandemic. And that really woke the government up that said we weren't really prepared for a new pandemic. Uh, and so we um, we put in a, a plan at that point to try to be prepared for it and really focused on flu because avian influenza was a big one that we needed to tackle. Um, but for other viruses, it seems like we just kind of, you know, when Ebola hit, we it's not as contagious. Uh, Ebola's, you know, it's contagious as if you touch fluids and things of that nature, but not aerosol-wise, so it can't really spread fast. So we had these little mini ones that popped up, and then this one came up, and I think what happened was is that we – weren't really prepared for a coronavirus type uh, pandemic to come in. And so we've been working on it. I mean, they're, they're spinning up big time on getting those testing kits out and getting everyone what they need. But there's always a balance like you talked about because it's the panic versus the actual reality of the situation. So as a scientist, I'm a little bit disappointed because we, we, wor- we spent so much time with SARS and then SARS kind of burned itself out pretty quickly. But then we were like, oh, well, then that's not going to come back. And then we got MERS. And then we're like, well, hello, there's MERS. And then I think there were some scientists that were uh, signing the alarm a couple of years ago because the coronavirus was starting to, to peak in some of their species they were, tra- they were tracking. Well, it's been great. It uh, has been. I hate we're out of time, but we are. No, I know. And we've, uh, we've heard from so many listeners. And I mean, even just from this morning when we talked, people were just kind of excited and throughout the day to, to find out from actual professionals what's going on. Because there's been a lack of that. that. That's the honest truth. I mean, a lot of times what we've seen over the last few uh, days and weeks is that the professionals aren't maybe they're kind of not supposed to talk about it as much, you know, because they're trying to go through this funnel of what the proper way yeah. to discuss it is. And, and then you have social media, which is just, just no holes barred yeah. kind of deal. There's a, just, uh, there's a pretty good pod te- podcast by Sanjay Gupta about this. It's about four or five episodes, and it's pretty scientifically based. So that's another good one. I mean, I would also recommend uh, This Week in Virology with uh, Vincent Reconello from Columbia. Okay. Very excellent. They do an episode every week about coronavirus, and they usually go through papers, they go through data, they answer questions from people's fears and things of that nature. But nice. if you're looking to get in to have a calming conversation about What's the name of it again? Uh, this Week in Virology. That's uh, Vincent Reconello is a really good podcaster for virology. Nice. You guys should start a Westfall and Westfall podcast. <laughs> think so. Hey, by the way, you can catch these uh, talks we've had tonight um, on the podcast. Let's think on it. That'll be out in just a, a few days there. So this has been great. Uh, Landon Westfall, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Hate it's under these circumstances, but still <laughs> is glad to have you here and to help explain it all to us. And Dr. Westfall, always a pleasure. Sure. Thanks. To listen to Dr. Mark Westfall live, check out O Brother Radio on Birmingham Mountain Radio. 
107.3 FM in Birmingham, 97.5 in Tuscaloosa, at bhammountainradio.com, or on the free BMR app. Join in with your questions and comments on Twitter, at Lockamy Brothers. <laughs>